Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Fuzz on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Do you have an invitation, Cardo? Andrew Tavendale. Damn you. Let Neptune strike you dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You have joined us for another intermission podcast where we talk about a random selection of films. So let us begin that selection of films by talking about Terminator Dark Fate. Who's been blessed with this one? Great. Uh, that, would be, that would be yes. me. Uh, is it is it blessed? Oh, <laughs> let's wait and see. I'm one of those sad people who don't want to give up on uh, the Terminator, despite the bizarre best efforts of every movie since <laughs> T2 to torpedo the franchise entirely. Uh, I skipped Salvation altogether, and I checked out halfway through Genesis because everything and everyone about it annoyed me so much my skin itched. <laughs> and I just can't understand the need for the stakeholders of this franchise to feel the need to reboot it every five minutes. So so, uh, so it was, I dared to hope that there was hope when Dark Fate was announced. What with James Cameron back on board, albeit in a wishy-washy producer capacity, but apparently with the backing of Linda Hamilton and in the capable enough hands of Tim Miller. If, as promised, this movie was going to remove from canon everything since T2 and pick up where that movie left off, I would, at the very least, give it a fair hearing and two hours or so of my time. Now, if you haven't already seen the movie and are concerned about spoilers, then skip ahead ten minutes or use the chapter markers, because Scott's good like that when he does the edit. Right, are, they, are you gone? Yeah. Okay, so if you have seen it, then I'm going to assume you agree with the overwhelming weight of public opinion that this is the third best movie in the franchise, and also that it remains completely unnecessary. And I suspect I was not alone in correctly guessing how Dark Fate would open, what with Edward Furlong dropping enough clues, and I was genuinely excited to find out I was correct. It's a bold reinvention indeed for a Terminator movie to cold open on a teenage John Connor getting a point-blank chest full of double-up buckshot as Sarah looks helplessly on, and I was immediately on board for whatever this exciting divergence from the norm would deliver. After all, this was clearly not going to be another rehash of the exact same plot of machines from the future hunting down the eventual human leader of a post-apocalypse resistance (laughs) it may well be that I take to the grave the sense of absolute dismay this movie left me in, the sheer bewilderment at why the key original cast and the man who invented the thing would sign back up and sweep the deck just to deliver the exact same movie again. Does Jim Cameron need the money for a new submarine or something? And listen, there is some stuff I do like in here, and at least one aspect of the story that I think might have been an amazing opportunity to genuinely deliver something different. Uh, to wit, for example, there's a pretty good uh, sorry, there is pretty good value to be had in a movie this high profile setting a key scene at a US-Mexico border concentration camp. But when you fail to capitalise on that with any kind of commentary or analysis whatsoever, guess what you end up with? Just another location. I also like Mackenzie Davis quite a bit, though here she's really wasting her time in delivering lines with an energy her most significant co-star, Linda, just give me the damn bottle, Hamilton, can really be bothered to match. And did you notice that Natalia Reyes, who plays Danny Ramos, the new Terminator's target, didn't get my co-star billing there? That's because there are huge swathes of the movie where we kind of forget she's even a thing. <laughs> I never expected to drop her jaws at the most signposted revelation regarding her character in the latter stages of the movie, by which point I can promise you will not care. (laughs) Here's my pitch for how this could have been a better movie and made a profit by turning in at $60 million, a third of the actual budget. Get rid of that daft explodey plane sequence, have a nice set piece at the start and a nice set piece at the end, 
And in between, let me spend an hour with Arnie in his cabin in the woods learning about his journey since smoking John Connor, because in the five minutes expended on that particular plot development, it is abundantly clear that it is the movie's single interesting idea. (laughs) Arnie even does a decent job of hitting some emotional beats, albeit robotically so, obviously, and I actually think he probably could have sustained that. I've no idea what people's salaries were, but if they were that interested in coming back for, quote, the right material, then my idea would see them happily taking a back-end deal. Of course, it couldn't have happened because anyone who says the radical script uh, attacks, (laughs) the radical script attracted them to this movie, didn't read the script. So there's a non-time travel paradox for you to chew on. So... Frustrating it is then, and that's before we delve into the lip service paid to gender equality by swapping in an almost exclusively female cast into a franchise that was already driven by a powerful female lead. Oops. <laughs> and that's that's the short version of a, a slightly bigger screed uh, that I wrote some weeks ago where I outlined my plans to remake Terminator Dark Fate in my own mould and deliver a profit. <laughs> there you go. 180-odd million dollars, I think, and it's made 260 million back. So we won't be seeing another of these uh, because I suspect that profit doesn't even cover the marketing budget for it. Yeah. It's... Possibly, but I would have said the same after Genesis. Um, <laughs> well, this this just seems to be an idea that will not die. Um, Terminators are a thing that people remember, so this will be recycled forever. The same film, again and again and again and again, <laughs> going looping through time, doing the same thing marginally differently until we all die. And it, it cannot be stopped until we are all dead. Um, I just, this was certainly a film that I watched. Um, I, I got. <laughs> I realised about half an hour in, um, when the new not Skynet Terminator shows up, Legion, same thing, different band name, when it showed up and did the whole kind of metal flesh thing, and then the metal flesh jumped out and became a separate thing from the robot body, I kind of went, oh, I understand now, you're a stupid film. (laughs) (laughs) I I will now pay you the level of attention I think you deserve, and more or less... the rest of it kind of washed over me. Like you say, Arnie's the only vaguely interesting thing in it, yep. and the rest of it is just there. Yeah, I would honestly sit and watch a 90-minute movie where it is just him and Linda Hamilton and a couple of the others talking about his journey <laughs> in a cabin in the woods. Yeah, this uh, I have watched, because I'm weird like this, decided that I would watch all of the Terminator films again before I saw this. Oh, <laughs> why? <sighs> Well, there's two good ones. So, uh, well, what I have discovered on having watched them all again is that I am nothing like as salty as I was about Genesis or Salvation. They're mostly just boring. Um, mm. Genesis, uh, Salvation in particular. It's, Salvation is a incredibly mediocre film rather than an outright bad one. Genesis, I think maybe because I knew I was expecting this time, which didn't have the same level of ire. But I've discovered this, this isn't this is in fact the fourth best film in this this series, not the third, because Rise of the Machines is still better than this by a margin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always thought Rise of the Machines was okay. The biggest problem with Rise of the Machines always was Nick Stull, yeah. which didn't fit the role of John Connor no. at all, and everything else was um, about it was, was decent enough it was a fairly serviceable film it still is actually I'll need to watch it again yeah um, it's just it's reaffirmed my feeling that I do prefer Terminator 2 to Terminator which we talked about not that long ago I think mm. maybe our um, Tech Noir episode yep oh god that is actually a while ago now <laughs> but yeah um, third one apart from that it's the best then this but this is a long way off of that I had actually managed to 
thanks to my large media blackout, which is I don't care about anything. I never read stuff like <laughs> things about film stuff anymore or the news. In fact, I just don't care about anything <laughs> until I watch it. Uh, <laughs> I managed to know nothing about any of the stuff that you were hinting at, Craig, that mm. Edward Furlong would be hinting. It's like, I had no idea Edward Furlong was in this film. In fact, I wasn't even entirely certain Arnie was. Because um, mm. uh, I, I had paid so little attention to it, I didn't care. I was like, I'll wait till it comes out and I'll watch it. Mm. But what I had caught was that it was meant to be like wiping everything, saying that everything after Terminator 2 didn't count. But that isn't even the first time that's been done. Because Genesis wipes out everything after Terminator 2. Mm. Or possibly even after Terminator, because Salvation and follows on from 3, which follows on from 2. So they're not even original with that idea. And then this film starts, and Mackenzie Davis turns up. Well, in body, because she's terrible. <laughs> she's truly, truly awful. And I'm like, well, I assume she's a Terminator then, because, oh no, she's not. She's just rubbish, right? Okay. She's acting in the wrong movie, because she's the only... I think she sticks out like a sore thumb, because she's the only one investing emotion in it. And I think she's sort of like turned up two notches above anyone else. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'd say two notches below, because I did not get emotion from her at all, unless possible, um, possibly it was just ennui. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just didn't care for it at all. There's a point near the start of the film where Linda Hamilton's talking to her and I think the discussion is around about some like being this great leader of uh, or teaching John Connor and stuff and then she says why do I have this strong urge to like basically beat the crap out of you I'm like that's weird because it's definitely not Sarah Connor's the character I'm feeling that about mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I, I just did not care for her character at all and then yeah th- that revelation Craig it's like, oh yeah. Not only is it really, really obvious because they're very careful to not say names or genders or anything. Mm. It's like, yeah. Also, I can count. You said Grace has come back from a future which is only twenty-three years away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's not going to have had time to have had a child who then became a leader of humans somehow. Obviously, it's her. <laughs> Basic arithmetic tells me that. Let alone shoddy storytelling. <laughs> and yeah, and Natalia Reyes herself, the Colombian actress, she's well. She's kind of likeable enough, I guess, in her kind of Sarah Connor from the Terminator role. But in the few scenes where you're shown she's meant to be an inspiring leader, I was like, yeah. not, not buying that nope. at all. Flat on its arse. Yeah. Oh, the other films where you see John Connor, until it becomes Christian Bale, and to be fair, it's not one of Christian Bale's best performances, but until it's Christian Bale, mm. basically adult John Connor's leader resistance doesn't talk. Yeah. You get told about him. He doesn't do anything himself. Like, that turned out to be quite a good idea. He just has a thousand yards there and occasionally turns his head so you can see how badly scarred his face is in the atmospheric lighting. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's like um, the John Connor, as he's growing up, so Edward Furlong in particular, because um, next that was just so badly cast in mm. the three. But uh, yeah, that scene in the future when she's trying to inspire people, I was like, nah. No, that was the worst part of the movie in my book. It's up there. Yeah, um, and the second worst part being Linda Hamilton's delivery of the line, you John. Her delivery of the line, I'll be back, was also pretty poor. <laughs> Actually, we should just agree that the delivery of both lines in this film are pretty poor. Yeah. I, love, I love that we're expected to believe that Linda Hamilton was really invested in coming back because of the because of the story elements, which is patently not true, and so we can only assume that it's because she needed to restock her drinks cabinet. <laughs> I was actually quite enjoying Linda Hamilton in this though, because she was like badass and like... Well, there are, here's the thing Drew, there's points where she's lucid, but then it's like 10% of the time and the rest of the time it's so obvious you just can't be bothered. Yeah, it's a pity too because there are hints that you've got to remember too that 
in Terminator 2, Lyndall Hamilton's Sarah Connor is set up as someone who's basically willing to be a Terminator. Yeah. Who's willing to murder someone and their children so that the future wouldn't happen. Yeah. Right, um, and she only didn't do it. She she breaks down afterwards, but she yeah. only didn't do it um, because a wee robot, a radio control car bumped into Miles Dyson's ankle. So <laughs> you know, so she, there are hints of that badass, morally corrupt Sarah Connor in there. That's really interesting. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, for the most part, as you say, yeah, she's sloshed. She was always she was always the best thing about the movies, and it's really sad to see her in this in terms of where she's at now because she's a shadow of her former self. Yeah, I mean, she was like she was a character comparable to Ripley from Aliens, right? Mm. Um, except that Sigourney Weaver managed to maintain that through the other films for the most part. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Linda Hamilton, no. I wish I wish I could remember what the article was I read recently, and it was um, uh, it was it was talking through the production, and it had it had um, sound bites from Hamilton and the rest of it. I can't remember if it was if it would have been on like Wired or something. I can't think. Um, it would have been one of the online sites, and Linda Hamilton had the temerity to say that she got really upset and she was like crying on set because that opening scene where they'd done um, you know the face replacement stuff and everything. Mm-hmm. Which alternates between being really good for her and like shockingly bad for <laughs> for John. It's really bad for Arnie as well because it's yeah. like a look like doesn't look like Arnie. Yeah, I I wasn't sure that was him for a little while. Yeah, that's what I was. Saying. Yeah, that's it's it. Meant to be another T eight hundred because it didn't look yeah. like him at all. It's like meant to look like him but not him. And when you, when he walks away down the beach, if you look at the back of his arms when he walks into the sunlight, he's got like some crazy like really bad cellulose thing going uh, cellulose cellulite thing going on his arms or something. There's like his arms are like really weird and distorted in a way that yeah. Arnie's never remember that first that first shot of Linda, you know the younger Lynn Hamilton's face. I'm like, oh, that's pretty seamless actually. This will be good, and then it immediately cuts to like the most bunk cartoony shot of uh, of, of John Connor imaginable. But she she'd had the temerity to suggest that in that scene she'd got really upset because the the female body double who was portraying her in that scene when she jumps up to attack the Terminator she was really upset. And if you watch it, you can see it's like nothing like the way Linda Hamilton would have handled the firearm, uh, like in the way she would move. But then I think you've got to be pretty far up your own backside to get that upset about a body doubles work in a single scene at the start of a movie like that, if you are just going to phone in the entire rest of your performance and walk away with presumably, what, a conservative estimate, like 100,000 times the pay packet of that that individual. The the rest of the film shows her handling massive weaponry. Yes. Why do you care what she did with a pistol at the start of the film? Exactly. So, it's irrelevant because that's not the point of that scene. It's uh, yes, it's certainly not the biggest point of the movie. Never mind that scene. Yes, exactly. You're so blindsided by that. So yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So I basically had no interest in this film at all up until the point I saw the back of Arnie's head. I thought, that's the back of Arnie's head. Yes, in this, great. I wasn't sure. Mm. Um, and I said, you're right, Craig. That that is by far the most interesting part. It's like, yeah. I must admit, part of my of that part of my brain was thinking, yes, but Skynet sends the Terminators out with their chip um, set to read only. That was an important plot point of Terminator Two. Yeah. Who is this? But, but then I thought, shh, shh, Arnie's in it, and that'll do. Yeah, you're thinking too much. <laughs> Clearly, no one else was. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly the problem. Because like, oh, has she been doing it for them? Because something needed to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the idea was like, well, what's the journey he's been on? Like, and 
Maybe if you'd like, even had a, like a montage of him finding out that these Terminators were coming and seeing yeah. Sarah Connor take them down or something, that would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. Or just a film about he quietly in the background was aiding her in that. Do you know what I mean? Unseen. Yeah. Um, and he's got the most. He's got the single best line in the entire movie, and it's really a quietly devastating thing in a lot of respects. Where he says about, I think Sarah Connor asks him something about, do, you know, his, his sort of surrogate family. Do you love them? And he says, well, not, not in the way that a human can. And at first, I thought it's an advantage, and then he pauses and said, but it's not. Yeah, that's. that's I'm like, oh my god, there's a whole film there, man. Yeah, the bit is like, like the. The day, I told them that it's not safe with you here the day I always warned them out it would come mm. it would come and then it just went like and with with so little emotion from his family it's like they're clearly upset but they're not they're just like he's clearly prepared the milk because they go without any fuss or anything yeah yeah okay I want to see the backstory to that yeah absolutely because well, basically anything that doesn't have grace in it would be quite good mm. yeah, it's, it's really disappointing because there are some great ideas there and they're you know they're given five minutes of attention yeah, but, and Arnie is by far the best pen. It's not. Hmm. I thought even he was a bit flat in points too. But again, if he's not being given anything to act against, too, he's not the greatest actor. But you know, he's got like about eleven billion times more charisma in yeah. off day than anybody else in this film has. You know, I just I, I, and I don't imagine he will be back for another one at this point. I can't see it happening. Right, I can't see another one happening but at all. But if, yeah, if, before if they were going to do that, please stop feeling the need. Uh, it's not. There's no comic value anymore in just having him deliver a patently absurd line because it's ha ha ha, it's Arnie the emotionless robot, but now he tells jokes. And you know, you've got the scene about, I told him, don't do it, it's a girl's bedroom, you need butterflies, balloons. And we're supposed to laugh because he's talking about butterflies and balloons on, on, a, on a drape. And it's like, no, that's I don't need that. It's like in Genesis where he pulls the stupid face, you know. Yeah, see, I did laugh at that, but at the same time, I'm thinking, yeah, well, probably because I was so bored by the rest of it. But I'm thinking, yeah. I, I was so aware of it being so out of place. There are definitely bits of humour. Mm. Um, and, and then Terminator 2 does it quite well. It's because, like, John's trying to teach him, and there, mm. there's wee bits of him... Like trying to like smile and stuff. I think that's just an extended cut. Yeah, but that's that's just comedy. And when he picks up, when he picks up the baby by the dungarees and he's just like he's dangling there, staring at it and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, there's humour in the the probably the first three. There's bits of humour, but yeah, after that, all but Salvation's incredibly poor face. So there's nothing in that. But, no. Um, isn't it Terminator? I know you're saying you like Terminator, 3, but isn't it Terminator Three where he puts on like the Elton John star sunglasses or something ridiculous like that? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. It's like, oh, come on. Uh, actually, st- talking about Dark Fate, though, um, get by going with the comedy also, mm. could it dump out the wee calls back to other films, like to better films, mm-hmm. like the, the music they play when that guy's barbecuing his back garden is the music they plays in Terminator 2 and the bar gets the clothes, the boots, and the motorcycle. All right, okay. Uh, yeah, go away. Yeah. It's like, you're just rubbing it in our face. You're, just, you're just reminding us of a better movie at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's annoying. I thought, because when I'd heard, as much as I'd heard about it, it was like, you know, James Cameron's back involved and it was going to be like resetting stuff. And that's, that's great because we can forget Genesis. It's appalling. Well, uh, this stuff don't feel quite so strongly now, but it's not good. Um, mm. And like, yeah, no, they just they've spurned that opportunity. And I'm now, well, it, it got to the end of the film, and I was remembering that there were stories a while ago that James Cameron had been going to do an Aliens Five mm. um, with Arnie, I think. And I, mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite glad that didn't happen because it could have just been this again. 
yeah. in the Aliens universe. They're doing not good, I think. The other thing, and I thought, Scott, I thought you were going to touch on this when you were saying about, uh, well, you you kind of did touch on it when you were saying before, oh, yeah, this is a daft film. So what are the, uh, the other thing you need to ditch with these movies, again, in the very unlikely circumstance to move forward, is we don't need constant pointless revisions to the Terminator. What yeah. benefit is there to the endoskeleton part of this Terminator? Exactly. Other than to be seen in public as a robot. The only interesting is, yeah, it's, it's there for. anything. Yep. Every, anything from the second movie on has been totally. The, one would have to assume that this this relentless AI would also have some sort of understanding of efficiency of of design and purpose, right? And there's nothing. There's no. There's no justification whatsoever for, for having this thing that is basically an amalgam of the two, where you have a liquid one existing over the top of a traditional one. It's just pointless. Yeah, it's absolutely absolutely pointless. And there was another thing that was I was going to say that was. Yeah, well, the suggestion is somehody like more of a threat. Well, could you not just have two of them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's different. <laughs> yeah, or just just the one of them seemed to be coping on his own. Yeah, um, for the most part, at least there was. What was the other thing I was going to say? I can't remember now. It's gone out of my head because I'm starting to get angry again. I'm just frustrated because <laughs> I really want this to be a good film, and it could have been. Yeah, also, I, I get that. Just, I'm thinking about like the idea how much more interesting the backstory is of like uh, his journey, but like. How does Linda Hamilton, this wanted felon, able to call up somebody at a US Air Force installation? Oh, God, yes. And get specialist experimental tech with no questions asked. Exactly. How? How? I want to know that story. Yeah, it's interesting because nothing in this film is. No, I know that was the that was another thing that stuck out like a sore thumb. Listen, Sarah, don't ever ask me for this again because I might get my bum spanked if someone catches me with this. <laughs> I, it makes oh, it's just baffling. And then and then to have that, then to have that discarded as a plot point, and someone turn around and go, "Hey, I forgot." I've got one of those built into me anyway, as if that wouldn't be a contingency plan of you being sent back anyway. Listen, the worst case scenario is you've got this thing in you that will f*** him up. So use that. Hmm. But it's not, it's, it's like this, it's this deus ex at the end of the movie. It's just like, oh God, guys, don't worry about it. I forgot. I've got the thing that kills Terminators with me the whole time. <laughs> oh, my days. So what we're saying is eight out of ten? <laughs> yeah, eight and a half out of ten. <laughs> hey, anyway, that's enough about that. Yes, shall we move on then to Hustlers? It, it behooves us. Based on a true story, but particularly on Jessica Pressler's New York Magazine article about that story, Lorraine Scafaria's Hustlers can be fairly quickly summed up by the article's title. The Hustlers scores a modern Robin Hood story, the strippers who stole from mostly rich, usually disgusting men and gave to well themselves. That headline certainly gives a more accurate idea of the story than do the trailers, which paint Hustlers as a story of righteous indignation and retribution against those on Wall Street who didn't suffer from the financial crash in the way that they ought to have done. It certainly involves ludicrously highly paid Wall Street bankers and traders, but it's really more of a straight-up crime story than some of the marketing might lead you to expect. Set in 2014, the film's framed, sort of, as a flashback from an interview with Constance Wu's Dorothy, or Destiny, when she worked at the strip club, relating to the at first unseen interviewer how she began working at a Manhattan strip club, catering largely to Wall Street workers and other big earners, happy to drop $10,000 a night on drinks and private dances. Destiny struggles to make much money at first, but she encounters the club's top talent, Jennifer Lopez's Ramona, who takes her under her wing, and soon she's paying off her grandma's debts and buying expensive clothes and cars, all with single dollar bills. 
After the financial crash of 2008, the Wall Street guys are less inclined to spend big and Destiny and Ramona find work elsewhere and, in the end, drift apart as friends. A few years later, and a broke Destiny, now with a young daughter, ends up back at the club but finds it a changed place with the no-touching policy having been, shall we say, relaxed somewhat. But she runs into Ramona again, who recruits her into her new wheeze. Finding the Wall Street guys they knew, drugging them with a mixture of ketamine and ecstasy, and then running up huge tabs on their credit cards, of which they get a cut from the club. And soon everybody's in on it, before it inevitably all explodes and arrests are made. So, while the characters here are quite easy to like, there's only one stereotypically bitchy fellow stripper for instance, the problem is that it's hard to feel much, if any, sympathy for them and their inevitable downfall. I have no issue with the dislike of the finance folk, but a bunch of people who drug people and rip them off because they fancy a new fur coat? No. But Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez are fairly engaging on screen, though Lopez much more so, and the whole film is reasonably entertaining, though I don't care much for the structure and shifting framing. However, it's the inconsistency with which it's used that bothers me, not the devices themselves. If Julia Stiles, as a journalist, had it been dropped in so late, I doubt I'd been bothered by the attempts to illustrate redacted or off-the-record comments. I have a lot more to say about Hustlers. It isn't great, but it's reasonably entertaining, and earns itself a recommendation for being a crime film with a predominantly female cast, something which is rare, and from the perspective of a female writer and director, which gives it a tone different from a lot of comparable films that I've seen. For example, I doubt many films about strippers written by men would focus so much on workplace politics or the practicalities of relationships with such long work hours. And it's certainly likely that the women's bodies shown would be more revealing, more often, and with more titillation in mind. It is still there, though, particularly in a spectacularly athletic demonstration. She's 50 from Jennifer Lopez. Um, <laughs> the films stand out in every way. It's fine. This is Jennifer Lopez's uh, Lopez's best, the most engaging performance since Out of Sight, I think. Yeah. And I, I'd probably agree with you. Yeah, and she is. She is. I mean, not that I've seen everything she's done, but I did. My sister came down to stay a couple of weeks ago over the weekend, and my wife and I, she, we, we gave in and let her put enough on Netflix, which is a terrible film, but like in a very junky sort of uh, uh, sleeping with the enemy kind of way. I would certainly much prefer Jennifer Lopez to uh, to her other friend. Um, she shall not be named. Yes. And um, but no, Jennifer. Jennifer Lopez is really engaging in this, and man, she's only she's only getting better with age. She, that woman is like a, a fine wine. But um, I mean, obviously, this is a film which has got a, a you know a lot of, of surface appearance, and I'm not going to be uh, too shallow and just say, man, J Lo is super super hot, and she's fifty because it shouldn't be a surprise, um, and she is really talented. I know there are people who are disappointed that she wasn't nominated for um, uh, Best Actress Awards this year. I wouldn't go so far as to say she deserved that particularly, but she sustains this movie well enough that I've, I've watched it a couple of times now. I watched it with my wife, and again, we watched it when my sister was down again, and it was really, I mean, I didn't have any objection to watching it again. It was pretty painless. I'm not sure I'm going to watch it a third time at any point soon, um, but the cast are all engaging. You know, there are, there are a lot of bit part players who are I mean, Cardi B. I couldn't. I I was aware of the fact she was a recording artist of some popularity. I couldn't have I picked her out in a lineup. Um, as much the same, Craig. Yeah, but she's. Uh, but like, for example, she's pretty engaging in this. Lizzo's in there as well. Who I did know who Lizzo was. Points with the kids there. Um, 
you know, and it's all very engaging and very fun when it has a spirit about it. But ultimately, it is about a, <laughs> it is about a group of people who <laughs> drugged people and stole from them. Now, if you set those two groups side by side and say to me, which of these two groups, um, strippers or Wall Street bankers, most deserve to enjoy their life? I would always err on the side of the strippers because, frankly, anyone who works in Wall Street deserves to die in all the fires. Um, however, we do still have laws and legal precedents for a reason, and it leads to a relatively ordered society, and I don't want to condone the actions of Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu in this movie. But it is a good deal of fun watching them do it. There is a certain feeling of catharsis knowing that not one of these people was ever convicted for a crime during the financial crash or as a result of that. Um, And yet these women, obviously, for what you could argue would be a much lesser crime or certainly a a much smaller degree of financial fraud if you remove the drugs from it, um, were, uh, were locked up. But it it's a you know it's a compelling story. It's interesting to work in a moral grey area. I appreciate that it put that forward, and that it doesn't really make a huge attempt to absolve them of any blame. I don't think the movie asks us to be massively sympathetic towards them. Um, although certainly at the outset they are very they are very sympathetic characters. Um, it's just that yeah, emotionally it's difficult to sustain that attachment when what they ended up doing was so obviously morally reprehensible. Um, Whether or not their target market deserved it um, is another question. But listen, it's a good, solid film. You know, it's an entirely female cast. Drew's right. This is a crime movie driven entirely by female performances, which is refreshing in and of itself. And isn't Ocean's Eight exactly all of those? Oh God, all of those, terrible. all of those things are, or all of those performances are really compelling. It's a great watch. I would not want to, I would not want to put anyone off watching it. I don't think it's going to go down in history as a classic. But I do think it, it it has a lot of value, and um, and also if you were worried about, you know, if if you're slightly more prudish and you're worried about the fact that this is about strippers and that it's just going to be an absolute um, flesh fest, then you know there are there are brief moments of nudity, you know, maybe three or four times across the whole course of the movie. But I wouldn't let it put you off. It's, they are fleeting. Yeah, they're fleeting, and there's nothing exploitative about it. And often where it is deployed, it's to highlight just quite how depraved these sort of these these Wall Street guys are in their behaviour more than anything. So yeah, it, it's good. This is like a high three star to a low four star movie, depending upon what mood you're in when you watch it. It's it's good. It's solid. That's it. Yeah, it's solid, and it's a a film in this genre, the female perspective and the female cast, and and a female that director. That's a reason to to look at it because it's like not like most films in that genre. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember the director's name now, the lady who directed it. Uh, Levine Scafferia. Right, okay. What else has she done? She did um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which is really good. Ah, I never saw it. Crazy about Asians, which I've not seen. Right, oh, okay, so she's worked with Constance Wu before. This is the first time I've seen Constance Wu in anything. Um, and I did listen to a podcast where people were kind of berating her performance, and I thought that was a bit tight, because I actually no, thought she so. was all right. No, sorry, she's not. Um, it was just constant. I, I'm, uh, she's done this and seeking a friend for the end of the world. No, she didn't do crazy situations. Ah, I've crossed wires somewhere thinking about Constance Wu earlier. My apologies. Okay, no, no, that's fine. No, Listen, not, um, I understand thinking about Constance Wu. She's very nice. She wrote Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Ah, okay. Seeking a friend for the end of the world, I really liked. Actually, it's better than this, but it's yeah. not really comparable. So, well, on the, on the basis of this, is that if this is her on a you know a slightly off day or just maybe not firing all cylinders, then I, I look forward to seeing whatever she's going to do next. 
um, not much I'd say. Thought it was solid. Maybe a bit less impressed. Um, I thought the I thought I could do with about twenty minutes being chopped out of the middle section. There's a, a, a series right in the middle where it starts dragging quite a lot, where they're doing the same kind of drugging trick over and over again. So like, yeah, I, I, I get it. Could we just hurry things up along a bit? That aside, yeah, it's, it's fine. Um, my, my only real bit of cognitive dissonance was knowing that there was people thought that this is actually a really good film. This should have been Oscar contenders for various things, not just Yale's performance, which is the highlight of it still. And, and I don't quite see where that's coming from at all. That's a weird thing to say about it. Perfectly solid film, no. but um, I, no. I can't get all that excited about it. And uh, yeah, I think there's a level of wish fulfillment there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this doesn't come to being the best of the year, any year, not even close to it. So, but yeah, it's solid. There, there are lots of solid films. That's, um, but yeah, it's it's not special. Yeah, not watchable. That's it's it's not. Like, right. It's not like there's not a place for it. But you you'll know by you'll know by the synopsis whether it's something that you're gonna you're gonna want to make time to see. Shall I do the lighthouse then? Ah, the lighthouse then. Uh, disclaimer alert. There will be a couple of disclaimers in this. Disclaimer. When my wife and I came to the realisation we were going to be together for a long time, I professed to her that, had I not met her, I could have happily led the life of a single man in the relatively solitary existence of a lighthouse keeper. Of course, there isn't really such a thing these days. Bloody machines. See the Terminator <laughs> Dark Fate review for more details. Uh, so it was we decided to get married after all, and I spent the rest of my life merely imagining myself as the guardian of that last bastion against the cold, uncaring brutality of the open sea. The point being, I really like lighthouses. <laughs> Fortunately, Robert Eggers, he of 2015's critically well-received The Vivitch, is here with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson to explain to me quite why this lighthouse-keeping malarkey is not all that it is cracked up to be and how right my decision to settle down turned out to be. Not that the movie is explicit in that, mind you. I don't think Robert Eggers thought of me even once throughout this movie's production, but that is what I am choosing <laughs> to read into it. And I choose to read that into it because The Lighthouse is very much one of those movies that invites you to take away whatever you like, really, with Eggers himself distilling the theme as, quote, no good can come of two men being trapped together inside a phallus. <laughs> Sold. Um, arriving together at a remote lighthouse where they expect to spend a couple of weeks before relief arrives, Defoe's grizzled wiki Thomas Wake and Pattinson's greenhorn Ephraim. Is it Ephraim? I keep struggling to pronounce that. Ephraim. Sorry? Ephraim. Ephraim Winslow. There we go. Thank you, Drew. End up spending a lot more time than they bargained for when they are beset by an apocalyptic storm that grounds any relief. Worse than that, their food supplies are also ruined and the pair find their already hair-trigger relationship further stoked by the influence of alcohol. Cue a lot of shouting, sea shanties, homoerotic tension, tentacles and mermaids. Again, sold. <laughs> Apparently, and honestly, there's not a lot more to say to it about that plot-wise. Apparently, this was based loosely on an actual tragedy that befell two Welsh lighthouse keepers at the turn of the 20th century. I currently live in Wales, and I can confirm that this is pretty normal behaviour, so perhaps some of the barrier for entry has been removed for me. I suspect the ramping up of insanity may not be to everyone's taste, but here comes another disclaimer. 
Disclaimer. When I first moved from digital to film photography, I began shooting on medium format black and white film, primarily orthochromatic and a square frame. The tonality of that film, particularly when dealing with portraiture, is extraordinary and I found myself drawn to the square format because it drew out a natural tendency towards symmetry rather than the traditional rule of thirds and often in relationship to architecture. The reason I want to bore you with that is because the lighthouse is shot on black and white film stock, approximating orthochromatic by use of custom blue filters and within an almost square ratio of 1.19 to 1. There is also an awful lot of use of symmetry within the frame, frequently with an architectural context. The filmmaker's intention is to heighten the sense of claustrophobia, but what I'm saying is, this film essentially bypasses a great many of my critical faculties en route to my aesthetic pleasure centres, and I'm not necessarily going to give you the most objective view of it. If I'm completely honest, I think the film loses its pacing a little around the latter half and I had some reservations about Pattinson's accent, despite being assured that it is accurate to period and place. And by and large, that's as much negative feedback as I can muster. Perhaps my compatriots will afford you further insight, but I'm going to be watching this again this coming weekend and I've already ordered a physical copy so that I can listen to the director's commentary. So again, what I'm saying is, despite myself, I really freaking like this film. (laughs) Yeah. I too had reservations about that accent and I'd like to know how people know what New England accent sounds like in the mid-19th century with like the, the wealth of recordings people naturally have of that. That's it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's more that his accent seems to take a while to get up to speed. Like the start of sentences sound mm. wrong, but then midway through he sounds like he's from New England and it's um, that's the only slight issue I had there. Other than that, I really like this. Mm. I love the look of it. Um, I, I don't like anything like as much as you, Craig, the film as a whole. I mean, I have sort of idea what it's about. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I enjoyed watching it and trying to make up my idea for like quite what the different things were saying. Um, and I'm certainly going to watch it again to um, have another stab at that. Mm. I mean, the acting really is great because two people on screen together for the length of a film, it's not easy to do. No. And actually the two actors while they were doing it barely spoke to each other when they were acting because they were just so exhausted because yeah. of all the physical stuff they had to do as well so it's very very intense yeah um, and that kind of comes through in the performances I actually don't know what to say other than that a seagull buys it so yay <laughs> seagulls were and harmed the making of this film so boo because <laughs> seagulls are terrible it, it's just it's a striking looking film some really interesting dialogue which is based on and inspired by it says at the end of the film uh, various writings of people from like the early 19th mid to mid 19th century so Mm. it's it's kind of conjured up but based on a real kind of way of speaking and the stuff that Willem Dafoe's saying is is incredible (laughs) (laughs) there are some amazing strings of words aren't there yeah I was like None of those should go together like that, but that sounds magnificent. It's kind of theatrical and almost operatic. Yeah. The way he delivers them is so good. So technically, I don't think that was a sentence, but it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a really striking film. It's unlike a lot of stuff I've seen. I've not seen many films like this. Um, really interesting. I liked it a lot. This is a film that I'm glad exists for the people who will like it, but it's it's not for me. Um, I don't have any particular criticism about it. It's one of these rare instances where I can watch a film and recognise all the things that are good about it at the same Mm. time as not actually caring much about it. I get Um, that. But yes, it looks incredible. It's two really great performances. Um, I'm 
roundly jealous of Willem Dafoe and his character's ability to curse people. Um, <laughs> if I could do that, I would be doing that all day. Uh, but um, yeah, just for various reasons, the rest of it just kind of bounced off me, and it's like, yeah, this is this is a thing that I watched, and I don't really have much. Valid criticism because I think everything that it's trying to do it absolutely nails. It's it's got very clear ideas about what it's trying to get on screen and it yeah. does it and it looks great doing it. In other circumstances, I would be raving about it, but yeah, it just didn't particularly connect with me. But that's fine. Not every film needs to. Mm. And I think for everything else that it does is doing really well. Uh, so yes, if you're the kind of person I presume from what I've, I've kind of half seen the Vivich similar sort of vibes from that as well so if you like that kind of film you'll most likely like this yeah it's part of a, a genre and a an even slightly weirder subgenre that's i feel like it should be for me but it just kind of isn't um mm. so i won't say too much more about it but uh yeah i would if, if it's the sort of thing that sounds even slightly interesting to you it's definitely worth looking at and even if it isn't it's just so different from everything else it's probably worth looking at anyway i suspect that had, had it not been so visually specifically in my wheelhouse that i can imagine falling more on your side of the of the opinion scott um but you know as it is there's nothing i can do to escape my my preference and my my <laughs> tie to that, that style but I think whether or not you end up liking this film, my overwhelming impression of it is, if I take a step back, it's like, I'm just really glad that something like this exists and that people have agreed there's a place for it. (laughs) Because I think we need stuff that dares to go out there. And and you're you're right, there um, there is something like extraordinary about Willem Dafoe's ability to go all the way up to 11, but keeping it, keeping it at nine. <laughs> so he's he's given this like incredible, like you say, just he's, and, and Drew, like you point out how florid and sort of like endless the sentence structure is in some of these sort of like taunts and jibes and furious rants he comes out with, but he never, it never quite goes into the realm of absurdity. Which, Even a toast. Yeah. He's, he's, he's toast every night before dinner. <laughs> <laughs> he never quite like it's very difficult to imagine another actor delivering those same lines without just going completely off the rail at some point. It's just this it's just this thing that the four just has down pat. And it's just the the perform the performances Honestly, you could. You, there will be people out there who will take as much enjoyment from those performances as I take from the from the visual aesthetic of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking forward to watching it again, actually, just to see, knowing what I'm going to be presented with visually going in. I think will help me set that to one side and not be so overwhelmed by that and view the rest of it objectively. And I'm I'm intrigued as to what else I noticed this time round. But there's um, uh, Drew, you said about how. Um, was it yourself said how about it being intense, or, or was it yourself that had used that word, Scott? Don't believe I said that. No, so I think it was Drew. I, Drew, I you, may you have said that. That's how I felt it. Yeah, you'd, you'd mentioned the intensity of it, and actually, about about a third of the way through, my wife checked out, and she was like, "I just, yeah, it, it's just this is my thing. It is actually just a bit too intense." And she went off to do something else, um, and I can't remember what the point of that was. Sugar, <laughs> not for the first time tonight. I've completely forgotten what I was completely forgotten what I was going to say. Oh well, there you go. I I, I did like this quite a bit, um, and we'll see if it stands up to repeat viewing. But I, it is like genuinely, I couldn't I couldn't tell you the last time I've bought something on uh, on a physical format, and I just immediately was like, no, I need to know what I need to know. Does this have a director's commentary with it? 
quite good. Yes, it does, right. I need to know what this guy's thinking. Oh, that's where I was going with my wife having checked out. Um, so she checked out, but you guys know, so my wife comes from an art background, and there's a, there's a couple of scenes in this film later on, and there's one in particular, this like immaculately posed um, still shot of, of the two leads in this sort of like weird, um, surrealistic, um, uh, I don't know if, uh, tableau wouldn't be the word I want, is it? I'm, I'm completely deploying the wrong word there. Um, but basically this like immaculately framed scene, and it's so painterly, and I thought that's got to be in reference to, that's got to be in reference to like a known work of art. And I, I read an interview with Eggers, and it absolutely is. He's like, oh no, I shamelessly stole that from this 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 German um, surrealist uh, painter uh, by the name of Sasha something or other, this guy. Um, he said, and it's not an exact replica of this painting, but it's got all the elements, the sort of the the, the light shining from uh, from Defoe's eyes onto and falling on Pattinson's face and Defoe's pose, all those elements he's taken wholesale and he's he's mixed some of it up. And I actually I went to my wife and I'm like, look, I showed her a still from it. I said, look, look at this, right? And I guarantee you this is going to make you want to buy back in now. And she looked at it and she went, oh yeah, actually, yeah, I am interested maybe to watch the rest of that now. So she's going to watch the rest of it with me at the weekend. It's just, yeah, it's just really intriguing. And I don't know that there is a point, uh, to be honest, but um, who, who says it even has to have a point when it's this overwhelmingly intense and kind of just uh, beautiful to look at? So, yay. I would implore everybody to at least... Um, dip their toe in, uh, and and if it's not for you, then uh, no shame in that whatsoever. But yeah, I mean, it's had, I think it's it's had a pretty sort of decent, uh, if limited, run at the box office. I think financially, it's perhaps performed slightly better than anyone expected it to. Is it fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a low budget film, so like mm. budget four million, box office of just over four times that. So yeah, percentage wise, it's a good return. But, yeah, uh, I mean, a, a black and a black and white. Almost sort of almost square format film with a mono sound mix um, about two guys stuck in a lighthouse um, with uh, expressionistic tendencies and uh, a character who farts constantly is probably a tough multiplex sell. Uh, I will I will grant it that, but hopefully a lot more people get a chance to see this along along the way because it is yeah it's got it's got value. Cool film, cool film. Should we round things off with a look at Frozen two then? Yeah, shall we? I'm only going to make up an intro to this. Or Drew, Drew, do you want to take a stab at it, or shall we do it together, or shall we hold hands? Or because uh, I'm, I'm going to be blatantly honest with you, I can't tell you what the plot is. I can't remember. How much more of an introduction does it need, other than this is now more frozen? Yeah, um, yeah. right. Frozen, the incredibly mediocre Disney film from about 2014, made all of the money at the box office. So obviously, um, there was going to be a sequel. Disney have made a sequel. It's also incredibly mediocre. There's uh, apparently the great unanswered question from the first one was, why is Elsa magic? Um, you'll be unsurprised to know it wasn't a, fill, a question I had because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But this film sets out to answer the great question of, why is she magic? And the answer is... Stuff. Because we saw the fifth element, we sort of stole that because she's basically Lilu, but also because Disney makes all the money from Marvel, she's also now a superhero. So she kind of wrecks the world somehow, and then we're reminded that her great kingdom is about four streets. Uh, and to save her great kingdom of four streets, mm. she goes north to some fogged-in forest where some people from her kingdom and some people from her 
turns out her mother's people mm. have been locked in their fridges and they have to undo some great wrong and blah 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 and really they basically turned into a Marvel superhero and it's so boring and it ends but not before there's been an hour and a half of the bloody snowman <laughs> you're right Arendelle is about the size of Shield Hill isn't it um, so one queries where its financial power uh, stems from but listen I, I, uh, you know that I enjoy the first movie more than yourself Drew so I've been subjected to that film um, in double digits now and I'm, it's not that I'm desperate ever to see it again but the fact that I've never really objected to watching it with the kids when they've decided that's what they want to watch and I think we're up to like 12, 13 viewings or something that I have been privy to now I it's, I've never felt like hanging myself. It's acceptable enough. So there's, it's of a certain quality. I think it's more than mediocre, but I get where you're coming from. And I think where, where I would definitely agree with you, this is just exactly more of the same. Yeah. Um, so wherever you are at in your opinion on the first one is probably where you'll be with your opinion on that one. And that's that's I expect. Listen, more of the, same. The, the chances, yeah, the chances are if you're if you're going to have any interest in Frozen two, you've seen it already anyway. But it's, because it's going to be you've got because you've got young kids somewhere in your family right whether they're your kids or a relative's kids or something like that that's going to be why you've watched Frozen it's not going to be because you were desperate to see it as an adult I was a bit I was a bit uh, worried about what I was walking into going to see it uh, with the kids because uh, there had been some feedback initially that they're like oh man it's kind of weird it's like it, it's uh, it's it's filled with like a weird level of existential angst that wasn't in the first film, and I don't know what film those people watched, but it certainly wasn't the cut I saw. Um, I don't it's a magical talking snowman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and whose who's great gag is that he talks about a person who doesn't exist called Samantha. And but listen, <laughs> it makes my kids laugh every. <laughs> <laughs> makes my kids laugh all the time, so it's worth it's worth the money. Um, yeah, wherever you were, wherever you sat in terms of opinion on the first one is probably where you will sit in terms of the opinion on this one. I have now seen this three times. Um, I will, <laughs> I will no doubt get to double digits with this as well. The thought of it doesn't bother me. I mean, I've usually got like uh, I've usually got headphones in instead and just sort of nod at the kids every time I see their mouths moving because I assume they're talking to me and I'm listening to a podcast or something in the meantime. Anyway, but yeah, it is it is an, a, an animated film of a standard that is acceptable, and uh, you know it's not the emoji movie. So yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Um, watch this at all if I hadn't been for taking my niece to see mm. the first one mm. um, and I think I went with my mum and my sister and my niece uh, my eldest niece at the time and like yep all the adults found it incredibly mediocre and Zoe thought it was eh okay I think our sisters like it more yeah um, and I watched the second one again before this and like, yep but it's still incredibly mediocre and fortunately that's only the second time I'd seen the first one Craig mm. I, I pity you uh, it's First of all, I don't like Disney films. I've never liked Disney films. I think there are only five that are any good. Of all the films, the animated films that Disney have made, five are any good, right? <laughs> and two of them, I'm not entirely convinced, are good. It's more just good memories of them from childhood being the few that I liked. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a Disney film, so it relies on music, and I think all the music's rotten. Well... Rotten strong, bland is the word. Yeah, there's certainly nothing. Let's. I'm, I'm sure we'll probably agree on this part that there's there's certainly nothing that 
will stick in the conscience uh, of the zeitgeist quite like let it go did, regardless of what your feelings on Adina Menzel's relentless screaming of lyrics. Adele Dazim. Adele Dazim, yes. But no, it's, uh, it's rotten. But no, that, that song's not about it. Like, so <laughs> that's really harsh, man. <laughs> it's, but there's not that song is so bland. There's, just, there's nothing to it. Mm. It does stick in your head, but there's nothing to it. Uh, but it's that first film had a tolerable song, which is the one about Fixer Upper. Mm. Um, and the second film has one fewer tolerable songs, so you know none. Uh, you didn't like you didn't like in the summer from the first film. Is that just because you don't like Olaf? Because that is a genuinely funny song. It's okay. I, I don't have any particular grievance against it. Like one, <laughs> thread of it, so like it all happened to warm things, uh, cold things when it's warm. Mm. Yeah, but uh, not us. When the problem with this, the big problem of the second film is that they've just doubled down on the amount of the annoying comic sidekick. Mm. And again, in very small doses, Olaf would probably be fine. And I do quite like Josh Gad. I actually like him in the live action version of Beauty and the Beast, but. I just, that, that character is like, yeah, it's small doses, it's fine. It's in like a huge chunk of the second film and it's not for me. There you go. Yeah. Like I say, I suspect anyone with a vested interest knows what they think of it already because they're going to have been subjected to it anyhow and our, our opinions are probably moot on this one. Yeah, I, I thought this was basically the same film as the first one. Mm. Um, I When I watched the first one, I would not necessarily have thought that any of the songs would make any impact on the cultural consciousness whatsoever because I didn't think any of them were all that great. Um, obviously, I was wrong, g- given how everyone was singing Let It Go for years afterwards. I presume I'm in the same boat with this one. There's no single song in that entire film that stuck out as being in any way memorable uh, but maybe there is I don't know it, <laughs> let's go and ask the kids um, but yes um, it, it was an entirely competent animated film and yeah if you liked Frozen this is more of Frozen there you go there you go <laughs> 1.4 billion dollars it's made so far because mm. people have no taste cool. they should all go and see The Lighthouse instead <laughs> just <laughs> to make sure my kids I might swap it out on the network drive for the lighthouse. <laughs> Take it. So with that hint on how to emotionally scare your kids, we'll just wrap, wrap things up for today. Uh, we'll see you soon with another podcast. Uh, yeah. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. Podcast at fudsonfilm.com and emails or twitter.com, Facebook, the usual stuff. Until such time. I'll say goodbye, and I'm sure my compatriots shall do do so too. For John. Bye. <laughs> so I was, I was trying to think of something to say, but I realised that I couldn't think of anything beyond bye. It's perfunctory, <laughs> but pertinent. <laughs> it sufficed for millennia. <laughs>